0: And start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. Um,
1: I am personally very bullish on the future for independent physicians.
2: Hello. I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the Executive Session, a monthly discussion with a healthcare leader on a critical issue of interest to medical practice executives. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Tim Cohen, Chief Executive Officer, ALN. Uh, for over 18 years, ALN has provided outsourced revenue cycle management services to independent physician practices across the country. In addition to being the Chief Executive Officer, Tim authors a blog, What Matters, which provides insightful and provocative commentary for independent practices. He also was involved in writing a recent white paper that was published on the ALN webpages describes the opportunities for independent physicians. Today we're going to talk about the case for independent physicians and why doctors in independent practice have unique opportunities to thrive in the midst of consolidation and a changing healthcare environment. Tim, uh, could you introduce yourself, uh, describe your background and current responsibilities, and a little bit about ALM?
1: Dave, thank you, it's a pleasure to be with you today. You know, I began my career in healthcare somewhat accidentally as an internship as part of my graduate program in industrial organizational psychology, Uh, but I've been working in healthcare for well over 30 years now. Uh, spent a lot of time as a consultant, uh, did work with integrated delivery systems, really during the Clinton Health Plan era back in the 80s and 90s, Um, and it was in that context that I began to work with physicians. My partner and I founded ALN back in 2000, and we are specifically, strategically and unapologetically committed to helping independent physicians remain independent and in control of their destiny. We deeply believe that the U.S. healthcare system is better off with a robust sector of independent physicians. We'll talk about that more today. As you mentioned, uh, we provide outsourced revenue cycle services for physicians from literally the eastern tip of Long Island to Maui. We cover practices from one to two hundred providers in uh, most uh, clinical specialties. So, by day, and our primary business, I joke that we are plumbers. You know, we work uh, in the pipes of healthcare, getting our physicians paid for the care that they deliver to their patients. But my job, and I've, I've got the best job in the world, is I get a chance to work with our clients as they navigate their strategy in this healthcare environment on how are they going to stay independent, how are they going to stay in control. And uh, So we get a chance to see it in multiple markets, multiple practice sizes, and multiple specialties. And yeah. Hopefully well, today we can share some of that insight. Right.
2: Well, reading the white paper that you, you published on your webpage, uh, I find it fascinating because you you go into a lot of detail and a very good insight into how independent practices have opportunities and have unique advantages. Let's start with a discussion, maybe the broader environment and because I again, I found it most interesting how your, the paper describes the healthcare system as focused on four key areas: uh, increasing the number of people with health insurance, paying healthcare providers for value and outcomes, not volume; uh, providing care through integrated delivery systems financially at risk for quality, and uh, and cost, and then leveraging IT, information technology, to attempt to make the system more efficient. Now, at the same time, while these are these appear to be very good goals there are some faulty assumptions that these are going to reduce cost and I agree with much of what you wrote that these four measures are not necessarily going to reduce cost or bring it down to a more reasonable level Uh, they may actually be increasing the cost Uh, could you give us some some of your insights of things that you talked about and understand why is the healthcare system not reducing cost if we're trying to do all these right things Well, we are trying to do the right things. Let's go back to sort of the election uh, in
1: 2008 when I think the problem of the cost of health care broke beyond those of us in the industry and the average American came to understand that the system was unsustainable and it wasn't because of what they read in. The Wall Street Journal, or somewhere else, it's, it's they saw what was happening on their share of the premium. They saw their deductibles begin to climb, and President Obama was clearly elected in large part around the set of ideas that you mentioned uh, to fix health care. So we collectively understood that the problem was unsustainable, but. We're now a decade into reform that was really built on the, the four ideas uh, that you just articulated, Dave. And it's interesting, uh, while healthcare spending slowed down for a period of time, uh, now that we look back on it, it appears to be as much driven by the recession of 2008 9 than actual reform, because we are now back. Um, the CBO is projecting that healthcare will grow at least six percent a year. For as far as their forecasting model goes, this is anywhere from two to maybe four times the projected rate of inflation. Healthcare is growing as a percent of GDP. We're in the middle of open enrollment season right now, and employer-based healthcare, which covers still well over a little over half of Americans, are seeing premium increases between five and six percent. And this is with plan design changes and pulling on lots of levers. So, 10 years into reform that were built around these ideas, at least at the outcome level, like healthcare costs, not only are we not making any progress, we haven't appeared to dramatically tap on the brakes. So, let's take just a, a couple of the big ideas that are really noble, but kind of maybe tell an inconvenient truth, at least on the cost side it's a bad idea for someone to not have health insurance. We saw people medically bankrupt and devastated through those costs. So no objection to the goal, but it goes without saying that uh, if you put anything on sale, uh, you'll sell more of it. And we took a group of people that uh, were reluctant to utilize healthcare because they didn't have insurance. We gave them insurance and we're surprised that they actually are driving up, not down their utilization. Well, that's exactly what insurance causes someone to do. Yeah.
2: In fact, I'll interject something. I remember reading soon after the Affordable Care Act was implemented that the most common procedure that was performed among the newly insured was knee replacement.
1: Absolutely.
2: You know, you know people fixed their problems right. at, at a higher cost. And again, we, I have no objection.
1: In fact, I'm morally 100% supportive on the fact that People should not walk around with the fear that they are one devastating diagnosis away from being bankrupt. However, we have to, again, just tell ourselves the truth that in and of itself, uh, that has not bent the cost curve in the direction we mm-hmm. wanted. But let's take one of the other ones, and this one you know, is almost impolite you know, in healthcare circles because we have all uniformly said, oh, we're gonna pay for value and not volume and how dare you even question the assumption. If you unpack that a little bit, first of all, the idea of paying for value is a great idea. Uh, Conceptually, it makes all the sense in the world. No one in any economic transaction, whether you're an individual consumer, you're a company, you're a state, you're the federal government, wants to pay and not get value. But what happened, it appears to me at least, is that we blindly accepted that changing pricing methodology, that is, we're going to move to ACOs, we're going to move people to capitation, we're going to move to bundle payment, that that are all tools, but they're not the outcome. But we have fallen in love with and only talk about the migration to value as the migration away from fee-for-service and to new pricing methodologies. So we talk about how many ACOs there are, we talk about the fact that we've got 33 million lives in ACOs, we talk about bundled payments, we even talk about really good granular healthcare behaviors, we we have more people screened, we have more diabetics in compliance, we we have lower hospital readmissions rate. All good things. All good (laughs) things. But you have to ask the question, if we've got all these good things happening in, in all the methodologies the lights are green, and yet, at the end of the day, when you look at the cost scoreboard, there's no real evidence that we've changed the slope of the line at all. And I think one of our messages, particularly for independent physicians, who oftentimes feel that this whole movement to value-based care is a parade that's going on without them. Because I can tell you, as we talk to physicians from coast to coast and ask, like, how much of your revenue is value-based? the number of times that we get told zero or insignificant, maybe we've got a quality reporting bonus with one of our payers, they sort of look at the headlines where CMS says, a vast percentage of our claims are now value-based, where Anthem, where United says, oh yeah, we're making great progress paying on a value basis. Many independent physicians, particularly specialists, if you're not on the primary care side, think either they're living in an alternative universe or a lot of this is smoke and mirrors. And so oftentimes I I think we independent physicians have seeded this discussion and allowed it to continue around methodology. And here's where we think the opportunity is. This is part of the case for independent physicians because that whole migration to value-based care seems to be leading us to larger and larger integrated delivery systems, that have monopoly pricing power, not economies of scale, more and more employed physicians that are not more productive, but they now just have a site of service differential premium on their cost. And I think there's an opportunity for independent physicians who are still firmly paid in a fee-for-service world to say, hey, we're actually leading the parade around value-based care, our costs are lower, you get your care in a physician's office as opposed to an employed physician, the price is different. You get your surgery in a physician-owned ASC versus a hospital HOPD, the price is lower. You have your imaging done in an independent imaging center, not a hospital-based imaging center, the price is lower. So I think we are almost chagrined because we're still those old-fashioned fee-for-service people. But the truth of the matter is, value is not about pricing methodology, it's, did I get more for my dollar? And I think we actually have a pretty strong case to stand up proudly and say, we're actually the best value in town.
2: Yeah. Well, in fact, let's talk a little bit about what you just described, and that is that the concept of value-based payment as implemented in the United States through accountable care organizations, through capitation payments and the like have actually almost forced consolidation because you need economies of scale you need size you need to spend a considerable amount of infrastructure costs on right. information technology right and having done that you now have created an environment where the pricing for services is higher because these larger health these larger organizations can charge facility fees absolutely you know or they have the necessity to increase their prices in order to pay for all the infrastructure costs. And as you mentioned, they have uh, unique micro-markets that they dominate. So if you're the major healthcare provider in a community, you can charge what the market will bear. Right. You know, And since even in a fee-for-service with an ECO environment, oftentimes organizations make short-term decisions to maximize the short-term revenue through a higher price, Right. and then hopefully make it up on utilization but they size themselves appropriate to the consumption of resources. So they remain profitable. Correct. But the cost per unit doesn't necessarily go down. Correct. (laughs) I don't know um, the extent to which this was an intentional part of
1: the reform design, but clearly, as you just pointed out, Dave, the rules of the game got tilted to large organizations that predominantly could invest the capital for consolidation and infrastructure spend. And we see it both with the payers, you know, we're now in situations where a handful of payers dominate an incredibly large percentage of our markets on the commercial side. We're seeing it with large health systems where uh, more and more mergers and consolidations, again, make them larger so they can invest in that you know, ACO enabling technology that you talked about. But again, when you step back and separate the press releases on things that we're building from, okay, how's it showing up in the cost for the American taxpayer for CMS? How's it showing up in the cost for employers that provide employer health insurance? And how's it showing up for the average American who is you know, sharing in both their premium and an increasing deductible? I think the people that pull their wallets out and pay have said, at least so far, there's no evidence. That you guys have you ever heard our 2008 cry for relief because the industry marches headlong toward 20% of GDP?
2: Yeah, I I think you're right. In fact, I'm thinking in the context of the largest self-insured employers, uh, Walmart is a great example. Or you know, you look at. The, 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 the large IT firms, Amazon, you know, right. Google, Apple, all of them are, are in the healthcare business now, and why are they in the healthcare business? To reduce their costs, Right, and they're looking at completely changing how they deal with, with healthcare, because the system is not working. Absolutely, and, and I think when you look at Walmart
1: Health, when you look at Google Health, when you look at Haven, Every one of those direct entrees into our space began with a frustrated, self-funded employer who had a lot of employees and said, this is the only part of my cost structure that is out of control at the level that people just shrug and say, oh, well. So they stepped in and began to change it themselves (laughs) and in the process got educated and said, why don't we just march into the whole industry? Because it doesn't appear over there that they've got the solutions. And so... Again, when we talk to independent physicians, and and many of them, you know, rightfully feel very disadvantaged. Right, the the world feels rigged for the big guys, and, and there's absolutely a lot of truth in that. But um, this is a time that the opportunity lies for the agile, and I think this is one of the physicians' yep. great assets. Because the big monolithic guys, at least so far, have have not proven the ability to solve the problem. Yeah,
2: I agree. In fact, let's talk further in that area. The specific advantages that a independent practice has. Uh, let's just start with the idea of cost structure. Right. You know, I always look at the cost structure of the organization and a well run physician practice has opportunities to micromanage its costs right. and deliver a specific set of products at a lower cost than a large, large organization that feels the necessity to to provide something for everybody.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and look, I I, I spent a lot of time in the hospital world. I, I'm sympathetic to the challenges. Uh, it may not sound that way, but one of the challenges that your average hospital has, your average payer has is they have to cover the entire waterfront and they have to take all sorts of patients one of the things that most independent physician groups have is they can become laser focused around a particular whether it's inside their specialty or even a subset of that and build a highly efficient delivery capability that is tailored to maximum value maximum clinical outcomes minimize cost and take that to the market and and we probably have no greater example over the last 20 years than the ambulatory surgery center you know these are uh, facilities often built in conjunction economic partnership with physicians and they figure out who they are and they deliver great outcomes and they turn cases fast but at the same time they price that case dramatically lower to the market. And I think we've got those opportunities all over the place if physicians
2: will just grab the bull by the horns yeah. and yeah. I, in step fact, in and compete. I, I'm going to agree completely. And there's not only a cost opportunity, meaning lower cost to the consumer right. to the, or even to the insurer, right. but there's also an opportunity for better quality of care, which is right. part of the value proposition, right. that if you do a few things and you do them very well, you do them with the same team of nursing staff and clinical support staff. Right. You know you uh, you you can then optimize the utility of the equipment you have. You op- optimize your the most precious commodity mm-hmm. the organization which is time.
0: Right. Because
2: you're more efficient, you can do more procedures. So your cost structure goes down, and right. we actually see that indirectly resulting in lower prices. Absolutely. Because the practice still remains financially solvent. Right. By doing the right things right. very well. Well, let's talk about an, another major macro force that
1: goes with the the point you just made, Dave, and that's the rise of the consumer. And you know, with the advent of not only rising deductibles and, and a greater cost share, we're now seeing you know more and more patients behave as consumers, not patients, which means. We've called them patients forever and maybe it meant they needed patients to deal with us (laughs) as they sat in in our waiting room and tried to navigate our system and they're increasingly uh, taking control of their healthcare. This actually represents a tremendous tailwind for independent physician practices because if we cannot out-execute the big monolithic hospital and the big monolithic payer in terms of the consumer experience. Ease of access, uh, human connection, the physical experience of a waiting room and getting you in and getting you out, uh, you know, sort of shame on us. But as the consumer begins to exert demands for those preferences, that I expect my healthcare, since I'm paying so much cash out of pocket, I expect my healthcare to feel like the other consumer parts of my life. I think it is a chance for physician practices to uh, really hone in on the consumer experience
2: and optimize it again for that subset of the population that they're gonna serve and knock the ball out of the park. You know, in fact, I think there's a point that you made and that is the relationship between the patient and an individual provider, their their doctor, or the doctor and the doctor's staff, their nurse, because they know them by name. And that changes the relationship uh, I think indirectly, if you talk to a patient who is either very satisfied or dissatisfied with their health care, how do they reference the provider? Is it a they? They don't understand me, which is oftentimes what happens in the health system when somebody gets caught in the cogs of a larger integrated system, Correct. or they say he or she doesn't understand me, right. which now s- makes it personal, Absolutely. but that personal relationship is different. Absolutely. And it, and it gives dedication for the practice and to the patient.
1: Yeah, so I think if you take these things together, I think if you take the ability to focus on the needs of a specific subset of patients and really customize what you deliver for them, if you take the inherent cost advantages that independent physician practices have, if you take that personal consumer connection that we have and you put all that together, it's pretty good hand. And I think it's time and, and look, we're we're fans of yeah. physicians taking financial risk when it makes sense. But for many many specialties, it doesn't make sense to take certain kinds mm-hmm. of risk. I think it's okay to stand up and say, yes, we're going to be paid on a fee-for-service basis that when we do something that will drive our reimbursement. But oh by the way, Southwest Airlines is pretty good value. And they work on a fee-for-service model. Every time I get on board Southwest Airlines, they would like me to pay them. Every time a, a,
2: a set price. <laughs> every time
1: I buy something from Amazon, yeah. I, I pay on a fee for that service when I go to the movie theater, when I go to the restaurant. So value, again, this idea that value is now limited in healthcare to a specific subset of unique complicated and not yet figured out pricing methodologies is actually not the way economics work. Economics works when the consumer, including whoever pays the bills, said, I got more than what I paid.
2: That's our opportunity. Yeah. yeah. I, in fact, I'll, I'll point something else as you went along the way. And that is, I think the independent practice, the smaller organization is more apt to understand what the patient wants. Right. And the, deliver what the patient wants. Does the patient want surgery? Right. Some patients right. they need surgery and right. and they understand it, but you know, are you actually accommodating the the needs of the patient and the patient's caregivers and right. you know and family, or are you are you just bring them into the system and right. doing this is where we, oftentimes you hear of the unnecessary testing, and or where the patient is actually. Uh, made worse by the healthcare environment, as opposed to giving palliative care and making them feel better. I mean,
1: clearly, if a physician, based on their employment situation, is doing unnecessary care, that's not a good thing. That's another story. But let's let's even take, again, I think this is an opportunity for independent physicians. Uh, Let's say a patient goes to see a primary care uh, physician, and uh, she wants to make a referral for some imaging if she is employed by a health system, in all likelihood that imaging will be done at the hospital's uh, radiology, HOPD, which would by definition be more expensive than if she sent that patient to an independent imaging center down the road. And independent physicians who have no obligation to the downstream revenue uh, sources of their employer can acknowledge that, hey, my patient has got a high deductible. They're paying for this MRI that I would like to see out of their own pocket. Uh, I can do a great favor to my patient by pointing them to a lower cost imaging center because it it doesn't affect her one way or the other, right? She just needs the scan to be able to... She needs the image. Exactly. (laughs) Those are the kinds of things that I, I think we've got to not only embrace well, we've got to be bolder about telling the market a story that says now that you care more about the financial side of your care we're a better physician partner to help you navigate this than someone who is not going to think about it or worse may have some incentives right. to send you to a more expensive right.
2: place in fact I, I'll, I'll i'll reinforce that i again personal uh, observations Having had a, my physician ask who is your insurer, and then based on that insurer, send me to a testing facility that had a lower cost out of pocket because I was paying twenty percent of the fee personally, mm-hmm. and you can contrast that to the larger health system environment who only refers internal to the system, right? You know, which means regardless of you now they take all 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 payers, right? But their cost structure is higher, right. and they you know now. Sometimes there is more patient convenience because you're in the same system, but you, or you may still have to travel to that system-owned imaging center <laughs> to get the, to get the service. So uh, I think there's a couple other factors. Uh, another one you talked about is how a small practice, an independent practice, is oftentimes more nimble. Yeah, they can they have a quicker decision process than the larger health environments. You know, so they have a, potentially the opportunity to to provide. Uh, services that match the needs of the patient on a quicker basis or to adopt new technologies that may have a lower cost point than a larger health system who has to go through much more bureaucracy. Right. Now, having worked
1: with physicians now for uh, 30 years, a physician-owned practice has uh, both a, a positive and a negative when it comes to making decisions and being nimble and agile. The positive is Uh, You can generally get to the owners. Uh, Physicians are used to processing information quickly. They can make a decision generally pretty fast. The the downside that I think practices have to sort of tell themselves the truth on, and it, it goes into their governance, particularly as they grow a little bit, which we'll talk about in a moment, and really delegating some authority to their management team or to the board is, you know, physicians are also the revenue producer. And so a lot of times the meeting gets cut short uh, because there's a patient in the exam room or in the OR that we've gotta go see. Then by the time you can get everybody back in the room, some time has passed. But I think if they can figure out how to solve that problem, physician-owned practices are fundamentally entrepreneurial at their core. And oftentimes we sort of forget that really, really important distinguishing characteristic and so the good part, and, and I say this as an entrepreneur myself, when entrepreneurs are presented a business case, they're presented the fact someone's evaluated the alternative, um, you know, you're not really hung up on like, what's the budget cycle. If that's the right thing to do, we can make a decision over a sandwich at lunch, tell everybody by 1 o'clock and let's go. The big organizations that we've talked about on the other side, just practically that's not quite the way they work. But it does mean, and and again, this is the the challenge, that if physicians cannot carve time out to work on their business, and and they're just the revenue producer, uh, if they don't
2: solve that problem, then they can give up this advantage of nimble agility. In fact, I think you make a very good point, and that is the importance of competent management and also a governance structure in the practice that matches the needs. In other words, if you have a one-person, one-vote environment, one person who misses that meeting because of patient care or vacation holds everything up. Well, yeah, There's a de- necessity for delegation of responsibility and having competent management, both physician executives and practice executives, to address those needs.
1: Well, it's a great point you mentioned small while ago, Dave. So I, if you don't mind, I'd yeah. like to kind of unpack this idea, because as we work with our clients across the country, it, it really feels that the path to independence is now bifurcating. And there are many physicians that are going very small. Um, they're getting in their niche. Many of them are solo practitioners. and there's probably never been a better time to do that in certain regards, because you can buy certain services on a subscription basis. You don't have big capital outlays. Uh, You can turn on small ancillary revenue streams that might not matter to a large entity, but they, they will work for an independent physician. There's all kinds of ways that they can string things together. And so we're, we're seeing solo providers almost have some new life. However, on the other side of the equation, the independent practices that we are seeing thrive are getting bigger. And and it's not, hey, let's go from two docs to three docs, but it, it's it's let's get to 30 providers or 40 providers. And so we spend a lot of time talking with people that are pursuing that strategy. And we get the question all the time, you know how big do I need to be to stay in control of my destiny? And the answer is almost always, well, it's probably bigger than you think. but w- when we try to give some practical answers, one of the very first ones is what you mentioned. Are you big enough to be able to invest in exceedingly competent management talent that will work for the physicians as owners in in a classic sort of CEO to board level accountability, but are you large enough that you can get the physicians into a role of either I am providing care to my patients or I'm an owner at a governance level, either directly or through a board, but we're now starting to invest in a management team, and it's not just an office manager, but it's it's an administrator, and eventually it's a real chief executive, and it's not just a bookkeeper, but it's eventually working its way to a real CFO. And so what we're seeing now is many practices are gaining that kind of scale, they're still fast and nimble compared to the hospital, compared to the payer, yeah. especially compared to the government, but they're getting some scale, and one of the very first places it shows up is there's really competent professional management yep. working on behalf of the physician.
2: Yeah, and it's also governance. In other words, you know, can you afford to have a physician executive part-time? Right. In other yeah. words, you know, uh, so often that, the again, the physicians, if as you mentioned, they are the revenue source for the organization the most precious commodity is time and their time is valued right. at hundreds of dollars an hour right you know but can you take a doctor who is an ex- who has both good clinical skills and management skills right. and afford to put them half time lose that hundreds of dollars an hour right. for you know right. for hours and hours a week but you need it for the management skills right and that's, that's a that's a tough decision right. for organizations to make but that requires scale
1: it does Uh, You mentioned governance. One of the other markers that that we use, you know, as you you assess where a practice is and its maturation, particularly if if it's trying to get some scale to invest in consumer experience and invest in technology and, and have some conversations with payers about outcomes and those types of things. There's a very clear milestone. Not only have you added professional management, but at what point do the physician owners say We are going to delegate some of our authority to a board, a subset of Mm -hmm. our physician colleagues, and we're going to let a board work with management on the day-to-day accountabilities, the, the particulars of the strategic direction. And most of the practicing physicians remain as owners, and they function like very active shareholders. But they have entrusted some of their colleagues, a subset of them, to work with the management. And that's another marker, kind of on the maturation m- roadmap of when practices are are growing in sustainable
2: ways yeah. for the future. Yeah, I I agree. In fact, uh, maybe let's take our discussion uh, one other place. That's going to be towards some of the actual issues of value based reimbursement. Yeah, and I think because. Earlier, we talked about how so much of the healthcare system, whether it's insurers or government payers, right. that they are focused on replacing standard fee-for-service with some form of value-based reimbursement, So, uh, and these all tend to favor larger health systems. What can independent practices do to resolve that problem? In other words, how do they, what can they do to remain maybe more fee-for-service yep. or participate in a way in these value-based reimbursement models?
1: I think there
2: there are a couple of things that uh,
1: we find ourselves talking with our clients about. Number one is just to simply talk about a lower unit cost with your payers, very directly, that this care in our office versus an employed physician, this care in our outpatient facility versus an HOPD, and I think our, I think independent physicians have got to develop. Uh, not only confidence, but a better talk track on, on how to just have that straight conversation with payers. I think the second thing that we're seeing a lot of is as, as some of our practices, particularly when they get to some scale, they, they've got their own capable IT, they've got their own capable rev cycle, professional management that, that can take some time to put a story together with payers. They're also starting to understand that the payer will look at them in more of an episode of care type basis. You know, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, it's not just what I paid you, but what did I pay the facility? What did I pay for physical therapy? And there are actually some really interesting conversations you can have with payers that don't take us all the way to capitation or maybe even to bundle payments. It may stay pure fee for service, but if we can walk in and talk to the payer about here's what our downstream costs to you are, and show that our whole package is actually materially less expensive. Then you've actually changed the conversation around, how do I, you know, what's the contract rate for our professional service? The other thing I think to always keep in mind is whether the payer is fully insured or, as increasingly is the case, they're a third-party administrator for a self-funded employer setting behind them at the end of the day, while they may think about their buckets, here's what we pay docs and here's what we pay hospitals and here's what we pay pharmacy, uh, if we can tell a story about how we change all of our downstream cost, it completely reframes the question on now, here's what we need on the, the part of your money that we put in our pocket, but here's how you benefit on where we send our patients outside our office.
2: I think well done. In fact, you know we've been talking a long time. I don't want we could probably go on for a lot longer. I do want to f- come back to uh, one other element in, in your at the sort of at the end of your white paper that really described your viable future for the uh, for independent practices. Uh, but also you say that the you know the environment is changing, so consequently you know you can't pl- to be doing the same things you used to do. Right. need to be able to look towards the future. And I thought you, you you identified three elements to success, leadership, scale, and boldness. Now we've talked about leadership and governance. We've talked about scale. What is boldness?
1: Well, we, when we talk to independent physician practices, when you're sitting down, particularly, you know, over dinner in the quiet of a moment, um, there are a lot of physicians that, that are rightfully very frustrated by the system, um, they don't necessarily feel they're getting a fair shake. Uh, on the reimbursement side, they see these large health systems that have just amassed monopoly pricing power, and and they're getting, you know, unbelievable contract rates. And then you know, somebody tells a physician, "Oh, you want me to pay you like 112 percent of Medicare? You, you know, you're greedy and unrealistic." And, I, I, I see them in frustration, you know, throw their hands in the air, and I understand. However, where I think the boldness comes is the things that we have talked about today, Dave. At the end of the day, the taxpayer, the employer, CMS, the individual families need somebody that'll give them better answers. And I think if you, if you buy the arguments that you and I have laid out today, and you're an independent physician practice. I think it begins with the leaders, and I think it takes the symbiosis of strong physician clinical leadership that is rooted in ownership with strong executive management that understands the business side to go together boldly to their market. And their market are their payers, their market are their employers, the market is their community at large. And, and simply say, we actually do have a better answer. And to take the steps to invest in, for example, an improved consumer experience, and to take that out to the market. And and yeah, it means we, we have to learn to market, we have to learn to sell, we have to learn to tell our story.
2: Yeah. And you have to learn to, to brag about yourself. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Tell you just a quick story, um, not clients of ours, but some dear friends, um, Independent Physician Association in their market, the market was collectively exceedingly frustrated by the dominant pricing power of the largest health system in their town. And when I say the market was frustrated, the payers were frustrated, the business community was frustrated, the public was frustrated. And this group of independent physicians actually launched a marketing campaign And they began to go educate their community on all the kinds of things that we have talked about today. And the community began to swing in their favor to the point that the largest payer in town developed a new product that they took to the small business community that was really anchored on a group of independent physicians. And it's growing like crazy. So I would just say to physicians, um, yeah, the deck is stacked for large organizations. But uh, to steal something from one of my favorite authors... Malcolm Gladwell in his book on David and Goliath. If the battle is sword fighting, Goliath had a major advantage. But the moment David changed the battle to slingshots, he was really good. And I would say to our physicians, uh, change the game. Don't play on the terms of the major payers and the major integrated delivery systems. Redefine the rules that are to your advantage and then boldly go tell the market your story.
2: Excellent discussion. Uh, I thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know our listeners will find our, this discussion most interesting. Uh, any last word, comments you want to make?
1: I, I'll just leave by saying, if it hasn't come through today, um, I am personally very bullish on the future for independent physicians. I think in the last few years, in particular, some of these truths that we've discussed have become evident. We're starting to see the tide shift. Uh, a few years ago, it was forecast that uh, independent physicians would go the way of the dodo bird, everybody would be employed, there would be 12 to 15 large regional integrated delivery systems that had an ACO financing stack, and the, the Kaiserification of U.S. healthcare would be complete, and maybe we were well on our way to a single payer system. And what we've seen is As more and more physicians have done the things we've talked about today, they've encouraged their colleagues to say, if you want to be independent, um, it's hard, but there's a path, and it's worth chasing.
2: Excellent discussion. Uh, Also, I want to add to all our listeners, if you're interested in the white paper and its comments, which I found very excellent reading, it's available uh, at alnmm.com. Tim, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the discussion. I've learned some more, and I think we, our listeners will have a very good uh, opportunity to learn from you as well. Thank you. Dave, thanks.
1: My pleasure.
0: popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool